open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. We had a message last week which I entitled, The Most Important Thing. There was a movie a number of years ago. I don't go to see a lot of movies, but I remember this one in particular. It's called City Slickers, and it was about some city boys that decided to go get some relaxation by going to a dude ranch. And they go out on this, out on this cattle drive with this old crusty cowboy named Curly, I think his name was. You know, and they're all struggling with issues in life and, you know, what's the meaning of life and all this. And Curly just had a down-home, simple philosophy. And he looked to them whose lives were struggling with all kinds of issues. He says, this one thing. Is that what it was? This one thing. And they said, that's all I... Yes, you just got to get find that one thing and do it. They said, well, what's the one thing? He says, that's what you got to find out. Well, we're going to talk today about that one thing. Because for a Christian, it's not a mystery. We've been told what it is. So we began last week and prepared kind of a foundation for it. I was hoping to get through the whole thing last week, but I just felt the Spirit of God really settle down in and, and try to deposit, because this requires a change in how we see ourselves, a change in how we see each other, and really a change in how we see our relationship with God, but to bring our thinking in line with the Word of God. The Bible says in Romans chapter 12 that we're, we're transformed, verse 2, we're transformed by the renewing of our mind. That's merely learning to think differently about ourselves, about God, and about each other, and about why we're here, and to line our thinking up with God's thinking. And God doesn't think He knows. God doesn't have ideas. He knows. He is the truth. And everything He says and does is the truth. So while you're turning to Matthew chapter 6, just remind you, I want to read some of the scriptures in Hebrews that we started with. I don't want to go back there because we could well get bogged down there again. But just... It was the writer of Hebrews was writing to a church that was struggling. They were kind of stale and they were beginning to backslide a little bit or shift away from their purpose. And he says to them in verse 23, he said, Let us consider one, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And last week we talked about that hope and holding fast to it. And to do that, he said, let us consider, let's be aware of one another in order to stir up or provoke, the word actually means, love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another so much more as you see the day approaching. We're going to talk about that day today. And he said, then he went on a little further and he said, therefore do not cast away your confidence which has a great reward for you have need of endurance so that after you've done the will of God you may receive the promise. And we talked last time about that promise, that hope that's set before us and where that hope is. It's not in our life here. It's not in getting the best job. It's not in having, not in having security. It's not in having wealth or health. It's not in all those things. They're not bad to have. Certainly health is a very good thing to have, but our security, our hope cannot be in those things. But God has given us a hope and we're to hold on to that hope and that's how we endure to the end. There's a book of Revelation begins with with seven letters, letters to seven churches. And each of them has this one refrain in them. Several things that are said over again to each of them. One of them is that, that to heal overcomes and then there's a different promise to each church. So there's something about overcoming, overcoming the difficulties, overcoming the temptations, overcoming everything that's in your way to stop you from finishing your course because there's a hope that's laid up for you. 
There's a hope that's laid up for us. And how we run that course determines what that hope is. There is a hope, but you determine to some extent what that hope's going to be. And we talked about the fact that, that we live in a world in which we're bombarded with pressures and bombarded with distractions and bombarded with all kinds of things that in some cases we cause, in some cases other people cause, and in some cases Satan's behind it to discourage us, to wear us down, to distract us from what we're really here to focus on. There's an example that I've heard taught to pastors who tend to get distracted by things and it's, it's, it's very tempting to do that and they use the example of, of a bus driver uh, for school bus drivers and his bus gets filled up with kids and every time he opens the bus kids get on but not only do kids get on some flies get on and he's driving the bus along and maybe a bee gets on and he's driving the bus along and and he starts looking at this bee or these flies and when he's looking at the bees or the flies what's he doing? He's not watching the road. And then he becomes so taken up with getting rid of these bees or flies he starts swatting at them like this and now not only is he not looking at the road but he's taking his hands off the wheel. Why? Because the driver's forgotten what he was in that seat to do. He was assigned that job to take those children safely in that bus to school. And in the process of that, things may come along that to be distract him and pressure. Now, flies may distract you, but a bee can begin to pressure you. Because you're not thinking, this is just a fly. This thing could sting me. And yes, it might sting you. But let me ask you a question. Which stings more, a bee sting or a fatal bus crash. And so the enemy works in our lives through circumstances. Some of them are negative things and pressures, and some of them are positive things to distract you and tempt you. And he works through those things so that you get your eyes off the road and your hands off the wheel because there are many people depending on whether you get to the end of your course. And that's really what we're looking at. In order to do that, we often have to be called back to, I have to be called back to, what's the purpose for being here? What's our purpose for being here? Why am I alive? Why are you alive? Why did God save me? Yes, He saved me because He loves me. Yes, He saved me to take me to heaven with Him. But why did He leave me here then? In a world that's hostile and foreign? Because in heaven, you can't get tempted to sin. But here you can. Have you ever noticed that? In heaven, the enemy's not there to, to try to wear you down and distract you. There's no sickness and disease there. Those things are here. So why would a God that loves us and cares about us save us and then leave us here? Because He has us here for a reason. And it's when you find that reason, when you find that one thing, and then you begin to do it, that all, everything else begins to get in its right perspective, its right place. Now that's when you find the power and the anointing of God begins to flow in your life. And Satan is so threatened by that. He's so threatened that you'll find that. He's so threatened that you'll do that, that he wants to distract you, wear you down. And I just sense there are many people now just worn down by life, worn down by the struggle, worn down by trying to stay strong, worn down by all that. Why? Because there's a spirit behind that trying to get you distracted, and to quit, and God's calling us back to getting our eyes back on the road and our hands back on the wheel and focused again. So in Matthew chapter 6, if we turn there, just to remind you that, that 
part of what we looked at last time was in Hebrews chapter 11. We went over because Hebrews 10 ends with that challenge that, that we are not to draw back. We are not to draw back to destruction as we're tempted to do, but we are to go on and endure by faith, for the just shall live by faith. And then Hebrews chapter 11 is a, is a list of stories of examples of people that did that, that people that finished their course, that accomplished what they were called to do here, and they did that by faith. But we saw that what allowed them to do that is their faith was not in what happened here. Their faith was not in the accomplishments they had here. Their faith and ultimate trust was they were looking for a city, we saw, whose builder and founder was God, and that was a city that had foundations. And it talked about Abraham, who lived his life here, accomplished his purpose here, living in a tent or tents. And we saw that what a tent represents is a temporary dwelling. It has no foundation. It's not permanent, so it can be moved easily. And we saw that God wants us to look at our lives, the, thir- the 50, 60, 70, 80, 90, 100 maybe years that you have on this earth to see that life and all that's contained in that as just a temporary dwelling that has no eternal foundation. Because they were doing that, they had that attitude, they were not investing all their hope, all their life, all their caring on their heart. They were not investing those things in this life. So they saw this life as a temporary place, an assignment, you might say. Because what they wanted to invest their lives in was the city and the building and the home that has a foundation that's eternal that God established for them and waiting for them in heaven. That's where their eyes were and that's where their eye of faith is. And that's what the ultimate purpose of faith for a Christian is. We are to use our faith to accomplish God's purposes for us here. But the ultimate faith is so that we don't get distracted by everything that's going on here and we keep our eyes on the author and the finisher of our faith. And then we turn to Matthew chapter 6 because we see that Jesus talked about this same thing. And he was talking about in verse 19, don't lay up for yourself treasures. In other words, treasures, what you invest your heart in, what you give your heart to. Don't lay up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth or rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be. The things that you value in your life, the things that you are most important to you, that your heart is going to get invested in those things. And he's saying, don't invest your heart. Don't make the treasures of your life the things of this world. Not just material things, but even the issues of this world. Because it's only temporary. Because when you do that, you begin to, that begins to be your hope. That begins where your eyes are. And now we put our hope, we put our future, we're putting our lives in the hands of the God of this world, who is Satan. Because we're depending on, for our security and our well-being, on what happens in this world that's in his hands by and large and not in God's. Okay, so that's where we ended up last time. And we got now into a practical aspect of this because Jesus talks in verse 22 about the lamp of the body is the eye. Therefore, if your eye is good or, or healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad or evil or diseased, your body will be full of darkness. So the eye of your body is for your body like your heart is. And just if your eye, if your eye is healthy, there's no stigmatism, there's no cataract, uh, then your eye is able to see clearly what is out there. The light that gets in that is accurate. 
But if your eye is diseased in any way, if you've got cataracts or astigmatism or some other malady of the eye, then you might be seeing things, but you're not seeing accurately. Well, he's using that then as an example for our heart because what the eye is to the body, what lets light into your body, what your, your heart is to your soul and your spirit. It determines what you're experiencing. It determines what, what you can discern spiritually because there's a spiritual realm out there that's more real than this natural realm that we see and invest so much of our time in. I mean, just getting ready for church today. Undoubtedly, you spent time getting ready, dressing up, you know, t- brushing your teeth, shaving, or with, you know, whatever it is you've got to do to make yourself presentable as much, much, you want to, as much as you want to be. And you've done a great job, by the way. Um, <laughs> So, yeah, uh, but that took time and effort, and sometimes we get frustrated with that process, you know, a hair doesn't go where it's supposed to go, or something like that, and when we get upset about it, that shows we've invested some of ourselves in that. That means so much to me, I'm willing to get in strife with somebody, maybe, or just mad or frustrated. And so, so that's a sign that, that, that those things are meaning something to me, maybe a little more than they should be, because am I that upset about the lost people I drove past to get here? Am I as upset or concerned for the things that God's concerned about as I am for whether I look the way I want to look and whether I got my tie on straight or whatever it is? What, whatever it is that either upsets you or we're going to see whatever worries you, those are the things you've invested your heart in because that's what he goes on to say because he's connecting the same thought here. He says, therefore, verse 25, I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you'll eat or drink. He's not saying don't care about it. He's not saying be, 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 be uh, uh, careless about these things, but he's talking about what you invest your heart in, what upsets you, what you worry about, because the things you worry about are the things that you really care about, and you're really caring about them because you're worrying, because you're afraid that the things you really care about you may have to do without. Isn't life, more than the, isn't life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap or barns, nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more worth than they? Which of you by worrying can add one cubit to your stature? So why are you, do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now, if God so closes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Now, we've often used that scripture, and it's true, to talk about faith that God will take care of you, and he will. He's saying, God, if God takes care of the birds, and he, and he, and he clothes the lilies of the field, and, and, and you're worth so much more to him than they are, why would he not also take care of you? And that's comforting and that's assuring, but that's not the real message Jesus is talking about there. He's saying, because of that, why are we so worried about it? Because here's the trap in worrying about those things. This is why Satan wants you distracted by those things. I'm not saying we shouldn't care about them. I'm not saying we shouldn't make sure our children are well-clothed and well-fed and that we shouldn't be well-clothed and well-fed. That's not what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, but when you worry about them, when that becomes the focus of your life, that if I don't have this, I'm going to fall. We're not going to make it. I can't tell you the times I've thought that. And guess what? I'm still here. Have you ever had that thought or even said the words, I can't make it anymore? Guess what? You're still here. So what felt like it was a crisis that you could never get through, 
guess what? God got you through it. And it may not have been quite the crisis that you thought of. That's one of the advantages of living long enough and walking with the Lord long enough. You kind of get a perspective on some of these things. You know, I've been through some of these things so many times, I know it's going to work out all right. I may not know how, I just know it is. And that's what's called trust. And so, but the whole issue here is what is my heart invested in? What is it that matters to me so much that I would worry about it when God says, I'll take care of it? And yet I'm still worried about it. All right. But here's what it's all about, and this is what we ended with last week. For your heavenly Father, verse 32, for all these things, the Gentiles, those people have no covenant, they have no basis for confidence that God's going to take care of them. They seek those things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all those things. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. What does that mean, to seek first the kingdom of God? It means to seek first what God seeks first. To seek first the thing, most important thing. To seek first what God's eyes are on, and for us to put that as the most important thing in our life. And then notice the promise. If you do that, all these things will be added unto you. And what, what, we, what, what happens in our lives, it's like when you buy a new car in New England. Brand new car, it comes off the assembly line, it comes to the showroom, they check it all out before you take delivery of it, and when you take it out on the highway, the wheels are lined up the way the manufacturers according to those specifications. But if you've been in New England long enough and driven a car in New England long enough, you know that by the time you get through a New England winter with potholes and maybe bounced up against that curb because of the snow, snow pile you didn't see, eventually these wheels start getting off track. And so what do you have to do? You've got to take it back to somebody that has the equipment and they put the wheels back in alignment. So now you can drive not only straight more easily, but it doesn't wear the tires out. Because you can get by with your wheels out of alignment. You can make, especially with power steering, but, but, but it will wear your tires out very quickly and becomes expensive. So it's a good idea to periodically have your wheel, the alignment of your wheels checked. Well, the same way we need a spiritual realignment sometimes. Because in living with life, we just get focused on, my goodness, I've got to make sure the bills are paid, the rent's due this week. Oh, my goodness, the kids are going to need this, and what are we going to do about that? And I, you know, some people are laid off at work, and all this stuff begin to roll around in our minds, and we begin to care about them. And it's not wrong to be concerned, but the care is to give your heart to it. And eventually, we start bumping into these situations in life, and the alignment of our heart can get out of alignment. And the Spirit of God is the one, and the Word of God is the one that brings the adjustment back to getting it in alignment. In some cases, it may never have been in alignment. You may be a used car <laughs> that you got with the wheels out of alignment. And God wants to bring the alignment, the wheels in alignment, so we track according to His will and according to His ways. Because when you do that, there's no wear and tear. There's no wear and tear on your wheels. All right. So that's what we're looking at. Let's go over now. Well, let's finish on. All these things will be at verse 34. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. In other words, there's enough. Take care of tomorrow, tomorrow. Sufficient is the day for its own trouble. In other words, you can't do anything about today by looking at tomorrow, by worrying about tomorrow. All right. So that's kind of the foundation for what we're going to talk about today.
And we are challenged by the Word of God and by the Spirit of God. We're challenged to learn how, and you've got to learn it, how to live your life with this perspective every day of what's really important. There's an old story, and I don't know whether it's true or not. I've read it somewhere. That Alexander the Great, who had conquered the the Greek uh, general that had conquered most of the known world at that time, so he's now, he was very young, he was in his early 30s. He's king of basically the world and ruler of the mightiest army. He assigned one of his servants that woke him up, the job of when he woke him up to tell him that, oh great king, this might be the day that you die. He reminded him of his mortality because your head can get filled up with what you've accomplished and you can become very confident or the other way, very disconfident, unconfident, lack of confidence, whatever the word is, you can become discouraged. All of those are by looking at yourself. They're one rut or the other, one extreme or the other. They're both just the same problem. And so he called him back. He wanted to be reminded of a perspective on his own life that he realized that his life was only temporary. And therefore he learned, was learned to learn to live his life every day and treasure and value that life, but also live in accordance with that. So that's what we're looking at. So we're going to learn about this perspective, God's perspective on our life and this perspective that we are to have on our life. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. Verse 24. This is a whole part of a discourse where the writer of Hebrews is talking about the comparison between the, 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 the tabernacle and the temple of Solomon and the manner of worship and, and the, what that is represented in heaven, which is the presence of God, the holy presence of God, and that Christ is our high priest who has gone before us into that presence as the high priest in the tabernacle we could go in one day a year, the Day of Atonement, and represent the people's sins before God. Our high priest, the true high priest that the former high priest represented, the true high priest Jesus, has gone into the presence of not just a box, the Ark of the Covenant, but into the actual throne room of God to make the atonement for our sins before the, the, God of our, our, the judge of our souls. He's gone before him, and that's what he's been talking about here. For Christ, verse 24, has not entered the holy places made with hands. That's a comparison to the tabernacle of the wilderness of Moses, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God, look at this, for us, for you and for me. Not that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place every year with the blood of another, He then would have to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now once, at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed, this is what we want to get to, as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this the judgment, it is appointed for every one of us to die once. In other words, it's what we've been talking about. 
we need to realize, as Alexander the Great knew he needed to be reminded, that this life that we treasure so much, this life on this earth and this body that we want to hold on to so desperately, and there's nothing wrong with living out the course of your life and wanting to live that out, but understand this is not it. That every one of us is going to come to the end of this life. It's appointed that everyone, doesn't say when you're going to die, it's appointed that everybody is going to die. Every one of us. So I want you to look to your left, and I want you to look to your right. In 150 years, none of us are going to be here. Now the interesting thing is most of us, unless we understand this and we keep focused on this, like the school bus driver, most of us don't want to look at that. We want to look at the steering wheel, the speedometer. We want to look at everything else about this life because that's all we know. We don't know what's afterwards other than what the Bible tells us and other people's theories and books and things they've written about things. But all you and I know of and have any experience with is this life that we're living right now. I love history. I love reading about history. But those people aren't here anymore. So they can't help us anymore. I don't know what their life was like. You know, some of about the good old days. The good old days, they didn't have running, wa- running water in the house. You had to, the, the bathroom was... That's why they called it an out house. Uh, they didn't have all the medical facilities we have right now. You know, some of us, without our phones, we'd be lost. I mean, how, would, you know, how do we live without those things? But, they, they, but So they learned to live life in a different way. But I can't really understand that. I can imagine that because I'm living this life right now. And because it's all we know, it's, it becomes precious to us. And we sh- life should be considered precious, but not invest everything in it. It's not my hope. It's not my ultimate life. Because if I am, I'm investing everything in something that I'm getting. Not only does the Bible tell me this, I know because I've known people, many people in my life, and so have you, that were here one day, and they're not here today. Some people that are young, and you look at them and say, boy, they're vital, and yet they're not here today, and we and I are. But that doesn't mean we're going to live forever. So the first realization to get our eyes in the right perspective is to recognize that this life is only temporary. It's only temporary, but there's more to that than that. Verse 27, And as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this, the judgment. So the Bible tells us that after we leave this earth, this life, whether it's immediately or at some point after that, there comes a time of judgment. Now, judgment, the Greek word for judgment, is a word, it doesn't mean punishment. It means a drawing of a line and finding out where you stand in relation to that line. As kids, we used to, you know, make up sides for a basketball game or a baseball game, and we draw a line and decide who's going to be on which side. And at one point, Moses did that. When the children of Israel were building the golden calf, Moses comes down, and I think it was that one or another one, or was maybe it was the, uh, the rebellion of Korah. And he draws a line and says, whoever's for God, cross that line. 
Whoever's not, you stay where you are. And the people who stay where they are, the earth opened up and swallowed them. So the word judgment means to draw a line and find out where you stand on which side of that line you're standing. And see, that's not ultimately drawn while we're in this life. And yet all the time we're living this life, we're depositing things that put us on one side of that line or the other side of that line. Now, I'm not talking now about whether you're going to heaven or not. We're talking about, because we're talking to Christians right now. We'll talk in a few minutes about people that aren't Christians. But the point is, there's an accounting for our life once we stick, because we'll stand before Christ. So we've got to learn to live our life, not just by recognizing this is not going to go on forever. For some of us, that's good news. Oh my goodness, I don't have to deal with this anymore. Paul cried out. You read Paul's writings, especially towards his later letters, and he talked about looking forward to that day when he would be, when he talked about his salvation, this, the fulfillment of his salvation. That's when he didn't have to drag this thing around anymore that caused him all that trouble that wore out, that got beaten up, that got tempted by what he shouldn't be tempted by, that's the only thing that ever gives you any trouble as a Christian, is your body. And we're going to get a new one. I said we're going to get a new one. We're going to get a new one where the wheels aren't out of alignment. We're going to get a new one that can't be tempted by being weary or tired, going to be, can't be tempted by sin or distraction. We're going to get a new one. That's not limited by the amount of energy you have. That's not limited at all. It's filled with the life of God. And that's what Paul was looking forward to. But not only do we have that, but we have to give an account for how we lived our life. And when we're living our whole life trying to avoid thinking about what comes next, we're, 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 we're mistakenly falling into traps that are affecting what that's going to be like when we stand before Him. We get tempted to get lazy. We get tempted to get discouraged. All those things affect what you do. I'm not trying to say what we do doesn't get us into heaven. But we're going to see in a few minutes. But what you do once you've been born again affects things in heaven for us. Now you'll be there eternally, but you're going to be eternally with what you did here. That's a sobering thought. And that's the word sober means to wake up and face the reality. God's not angry, but He wants to let us know the reality of what that's like. So it's appointed to every man to die. I don't care whether you believe in it or not, you don't get the vote in it. And after that comes judgment and accounting of what you did with this life. All right. Verse 28. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for Him, He will appear a second time. That's the day I was talking about earlier. He will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. Oh, doesn't that sound good? He's coming back again. For those that eagerly wait for Him. He's coming back for them, and He's going to come for them, and the judgment's not going to be based on sin, but it's salvation. He's, not, he's already paid for your sin. So He's not coming back to deal with your sin if you're in Christ. He's coming back for other purposes. It's for salvation. It's for the fullness of your salvation. What you're experiencing so far is only a taste of your salvation. 
Do we think it's it? No, it's not. Paul talks about the Spirit of God being deposited in you as the, as the engagement ring, the guarantee, the deposit. Well, a deposit's not the whole price. Ladies, the engagement ring's not the marriage, is it? It's a nice step towards it, but I want the real gold on my finger, and I want to hear I do. I want the covenant commitment, not the promise to enter into it. And so the salvation we get here is the down payment. It's the engagement ring. The Greek word is arabon. It's the, it's the down payment of what really is awaiting us. And that's why Paul prayed for the church at Ephesus in chapter 1. Open the eyes of their understanding that they would see the hope of your calling for their life that they received when they entered into Christ Jesus. There's a hope. It's the blessed assurance. But part of that is an accounting for what we did with what He gave us here. All right. And see, the good news is, the good news is God tells us what the standard is ahead of time. So we don't have to guess going in. The problem is we don't like to look at it. We don't like to face it. We don't like to talk about it. One of the hardest jobs in the world is to be a life insurance salesman because you've got to get people to buy something that they don't want to talk about because they won't talk about the fact that they're going to die. And yet to provide for their family, they need to, prov- to do something like that. And I'm not a life insurance salesman, but I'm an eternal life insurance salesman. You like that, Pastor Ray? He tells things like that. I like that. All right. So Christ is coming back for those that eagerly wait His return, and He's coming back for us, not for His judgment for sin, but for complete our salvation. Now turn with me to Matthew 25. I'm going to read through this and then I'm going to go back through it and tell you what it says and what it doesn't say. This is a series of parables that Jesus taught about the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 25. The kingdom of heaven shall be likened unto ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were wise and five of them were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps, but they took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with the lamps. While the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight a cry was heard, Behold, the bridegroom is coming to go out to meet him. Then all these virgins rose and trimmed or prepared their lamps. And the foolish virgins said to the wise, Come, give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered and said, No lest there should not be enough for us and you, but go rather to those who sell and buy for yourself. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding, and the door was shut. Afterwards the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. And he answered and said, Assuredly I say to you, I do not know you. Now let's just give you a little cultural background to understand what's going on there, because we don't conduct our betrothals and our weddings quite this way. In their culture at their time, a betrothal, which is an engagement, was a much more solemn thing than it is today. They didn't just buy a ring. There was a time period that was set apart. 
And at some point when there was an appointed day, the bride would be ready. She'd get herself all ready and prepared and she would have ladies of waiting around her to kind of be there with her and to escort her when the bridegroom came. And there was, she didn't know when it was going to be, but there was a period of time. And when it was time, the bridegroom would come. There would be a herald. There would be an announcement. And he would come for his bride to take him to her house for the wedding ceremony, to where the wedding ceremony was. And the the, the female attendants, the virgins, would light their lamps along the way and usher her along the way. So the scene here, this is a parable, it's not a real story that happened. The scene here is that this bride is waiting, this, 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 the bride, she's not yet married, but the bride's waiting, and her attendants are there, and they don't know when the call's going to come. And so out of the ten, Five of them brought their lamp. They all brought their lamps. Five of them brought the lamps, but they also brought oil to put in the lamps. The others just brought the lamps and they were in no hurry. They didn't prepare properly. So they just came along for the ride. And all of a sudden, when they hear the herald cry and they know it's time to light the lamps, they go to light their lamps and they realize, we don't have any oil with us. So they call upon the ladies that did bring the oil said, would you share with us what you have? Now, if you read this on the surface, it sounds like those five virgins that brought their oil were selfish and and just wouldn't share it with them. But that's not the message here. I've also heard teachings about what the oil is, that the oil represents the Holy Spirit. And and it's always dangerous to take, take a parable that Jesus teaches and then use it for some other lesson than what he said it's for. This lesson is simply about being prepared. And the lesson is some, they all knew what was going to happen. Listen carefully. They all knew what was going to happen. They all knew there was going to come a day. They didn't know when it was, but there was going to be a cry, a herald, whether it was a sound of a trumpet or a voice, there was going to be a cry. And at that moment, they had to be ready. And some came ready, and some just kept putting it off. They didn't think or prepare. They knew it was going to come, but they didn't get ready for the moment. The other thing is, while they're waiting, they all fall asleep. They fall asleep because they don't know what's coming. They don't know when it's coming. And in the slumber, the sleep is because they just got distracted. They got tired of waiting. Because, you know, probably it's at night because they have lamps. So they're tired of the wait. I mean, if they go and the, the bridegroom sets up or the bride sets up and she's in her place, you know, just waiting with this great anticipation that he's coming. This is, I don't know when he's coming, but he's coming. And I'm just, I'm ready for him. And all her attendants are there saying, oh, yeah, you know, uh, you know and after about four hours. You better be careful. I don't want to put you to sleep. You know, we just kind of get distracted from what they were there for. They begin to talk to one another and a couple of them start yawning and, you know, they share some of their bread with each other and something like this and, you know, eventually they say, well, you know, maybe we ought to take a little nap and they just kind of fall asleep. Why? That sleep comes from being weary of waiting. The sleep comes from being weary of doing what they were supposed to do. The sleep comes from the weariness and this is why the Bible says, don't become weary in well-doing. Don't be weary in well-doing. And there's a slumber, but the problem was when they woke up from the slumber is when they heard the call. And some of them were ready and some of them weren't. 
while the bridegroom hadn't called yet, there was still time to go buy oil and come. But once the herald announced his coming, it was then too late. And they didn't know the hour when he was coming. And Jesus is teaching this about preparedness to enter the kingdom of God. Preparedness, first of all, to get into the kingdom of God. And then preparedness for when you get into the kingdom of God to be ready to stand before him. Five virgins were ready. They, they not only knew he was coming, but they made sure they were ready. Five knew he was coming, but they wasted their time saying, well, it may be tomorrow. I've still got time to do this, not knowing there came a moment when there was no more time and they didn't have a warning ahead of time of when that was. That's what Jesus is talking about here. So what do we do? What does this mean? Well, let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 13. We've looked at this verse before. They fell asleep because they lost their focus. They forgot why they were there. 2 Corinthians chapter 13. We talked about this a few weeks ago. Paul's talking to the church at Corinth. He's been correcting about them something. In verse 5, he says, Examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourself that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you are disqualified, but I trust that you will know that we are not disqualified. So there are times we need to just examine our own lives. Not tear it apart, not condemn ourselves, but just be open and examine myself. And just, you know, God, and I've been doing this regularly. Lord, I want you to open my eyes now because I haven't heard the trumpet yet. I want to see what it is I need to change and adjust in my life. And what we're going to begin to talk about as in the weeks that are coming up, what we're going to begin to talk about as a church, because I've been praying this for the church also, are some things that came out of that prayer. And I continue to make that prayer. Lord, I'm going to stand before you someday. I want to know now what you see, not then when it's too late. I want to know now what I need to change and adjust. And we've all got something. We've all got something. I want to know now what I need to change and adjust. And not beat myself up. That's, not, that's when I do it to myself. But open my heart to the Spirit of God to show me and shine His light on what He wants to shine His light on. So the thing is, first thing is to be, examine ourselves to see are we really in the faith? Are we really... Are we really in the faith? Or we just go to church and call ourselves Christians and we're confident because we go to church and carry our Bibles. We even read our Bibles. We may even tithe. But am I really in the faith? Does Christ really live in me? I'm not talking about perfect. I'm not talking about fullness of all the fruit. But is there something? Has there been some change in me since I came to Christ? Has there been a change in my life? If there's, could somebody notice a difference? Years ago, I was thinking of this the other day, when we were in another church, we got saved while we were in a church that was, I think we're the only people in there that were saved. If there was somebody else saved, they did a good job of hiding it. And we got saved, we went on a treat with some of the couples from the couples ministry from the church. And I decided, and I'd read this somewhere else, I decided, to, I was still a lawyer then, to hold kind of a, a fun, a mock trial. And so we put on evidence, we had a judge, I forgot who it was, and the issue was this, 
if you were accused, charged with being a Christian, is there enough evidence to convict you? If you were charged with being a Christian, is there enough evidence to convict you? I read years ago about a bishop who was reading the, the I don't know what he was a bishop of, he was reading the, the, the book of Acts and suddenly he said it dawned on him, he was speaking to some other priests or ministers and he said, I'm just reading through the book of Acts and I discovered this and it troubled me. He said, everywhere the apostle Paul went, he was persecuted, he was fought, he was beaten, he was put in jail. Everywhere I go, they serve me tea. I wonder if just maybe I need to examine some things in my life. If there were enough, if you were charged with being a Christian and put on trial, is there enough evidence to convict you? Or would you get off free because they couldn't see any difference between us and the world? So the first thing is to be willing to examine ourselves. Examine ourselves individually, examine ourselves as a church. That's what I've been doing prayerfully. But you need to play your, play your part in that also. Examine ourselves. Examine doesn't mean condemn. It just means to be open to allow God to show us where we are. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I'm talking now to what, what do we do ourselves as Christians? 1 Corinthians chapter 3. While you're turning there, I, I, I listened to a message, and I'm not going to tell you who it was yet because I don't want you looking it up yet. <laughs> it talked about the evidence, in the scriptural evidence that you're a Christian, the fruit that you're a Christian. Understand, what brings us to Christ isn't anything we do. It's not our works, it's not how much you give, how much you love, or how much you do anything. It's not that. But the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 2, we're saved by grace unto good works. James says that, he says, not only are you saved by your faith, but your works are the evidence of your faith. In other words, if, I'm really, if Christ really lives in me, there ought to be some change that begins to show up. And there are a number of scriptures, and this was the message that I heard, that went through eight different things that ought to begin to show up in our lives if we really are in Christ, if Christ really is in us. And some of those were challenging to look at in my life. Others I could see more evidence of than others. And it didn't make me doubt whether I was saved, but it made me examine, my goodness, there are changes that need to be brought about in my life. And I can do that now because there's still time, because the call hasn't come yet for the bride to come to the bridegroom. There's still time. There's still time. I've talked and mentioned to you about, well, but what we do here doesn't get us to heaven other than receiving Christ. But what we do here does affect things eternally. We're going to now take a look at some of these. Paul, in verse 6, 1 Corinthians 3, verse 6, Paul talking about this church at Corinth. He says, I planted, Apollos watered, but it's God that gave the increase. So then neither he who plants is anything, or he who waters, but God that gives the increase. Now he who plants and he who waters, they're one. They're working together. And each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. 
not whether you get into heaven, but when you're there, there are rewards, and they're out of this world. That was a joke. According to the grace of God, which was given to me, Paul's talking about his assignment. As a wise master builder, I've laid the foundation, and another builds on it. But let each one take care how he builds. He's talking about their roles, their respective roles, in doing God's will to build this church at Ephesus. And we're not talking about the structure, we're talking about the body, because this building isn't the church. You are the church, and we together are the church. And Paul's saying, I came and I sowed the seed originally. Notice, I brought the gospel here, and through the preaching of that gospel, many of you were saved. So I planted. And Apollos, who was a teacher, came along later, and he watered with his teaching. He watered the seed that was sown so that it could begin to germinate and grow. He added to that. He says, but he who plants and he who waters are one. Why? We're working together for God's purpose. God's the one that caused the increase. But he says, then each one of us will have our reward, what? For our faithfulness in doing our part in God's plan. So Paul's part was to sow the seed, to birth that church. Apollos' role was to come along and water. And of course, there were many others who had roles also. And so the reward that we'll get when we stand before him is for our faithfulness to do what he assigned us to do here. It's an assignment. It's our faithfulness. That's the standard. Not the results. He's the one that causes the increase. God's the one that's responsible for the results. We're responsible to do what we're assigned to do with all of our heart. Okay. Verse 9. For we are God's fellow workers, joint workers, and you are God's field and and you are God's building. According to the grace of God which was given to me as a wise master builder, I laid the foundation and another builds on it. But let each of one you take care of how he builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay that which was laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on this foundation, he's talking about our roles, With gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become clear for the day. That's the day that Hebrews talks about as it draws near. For the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. And if anyone's work which was built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved as though through fire. Don't you know that you are the temple of God and the Spirit of God who dwells in you? So what the Apostle Paul is teaching there is when that day comes, when you found out you're in heaven, now you're going to stand before the Lord and we're going to give an account. The the, the judgment seat is the Greek word bema, B-E-M-A which is what was used, the seat where the the ruler of the city or the mayor or even if it happened to be the king or or Caesar, the the leading authority in that city when they held the Olympic Games would sit on this seat and when the winner would come, he would come and present himself in front of that seat and he would be given a laurel wreath instead of gold medals. He would be given his reward for having won the race. And that word judgment seat is the word that was used for that for handing out 
the judgment, the rewards in this case, for how well they ran the race. And so Christ is going to, you're going to stand before him and we're going to give an account of what he called us to do and how well we did that with our heart, with our faithfulness, how faithful we were. And what he says is, it's going to be tested by fire. Now, I don't believe there's going to be a holy blowtorch. It might be, you know, and you stand before me and he goes, all right, get ready. You know, it's like these cartoons where just, everything's burned up except the person. I believe that holy fire is his eyes. Because he is truth. And he's going to look at us, he's going to look at you and me, and when we want to come up with excuses, they're just going to burn away. And our, all the things we did for our own glory, pss, all the things we did to impress others, pss, didn't Jesus say in Matthew chapter 5, I think it is, if you're, if you're fasting or praying to get attention, then that's all the, that's all the reward you're going to get is the attention you got from other people. So if you're serving in ministry to get the approval of other people, that's your only reward. You got it here. But if you do it under the Lord, if you do it under the Lord, if you do it under the Lord and the faithfulness with which you do that, the faithfulness with which you do that, then he said what's going to happen is some are going to be left with gold, some are going to be left with silver, some are going to be left with brass. Some are going to have wood stay in Hubble and it's going to burn off, but you'll be saved. So even if your rewards are burned up, you'll be saved. That's good news. But you're going to live without the rewards forever. And some of those rewards, I just believe, because we don't have a lot of information, it talks about the 24 elders throwing their crowns at the feet of Jesus when he comes in his triumphant entry. I believe part of those rewards are going to be have something to throw at his feet because when we throw our rewards at his feet, we're acknowledging he's the only reason we did anything. No one in heaven gets worshipped except the one who's worthy to be worshipped. But imagine not having anything to bring. And that's why what we do here is so important for, for a Christian. That's why we can't just get slumber and sleep and get tired and worn out. And when I get tired or want to quit or just get discouraged, I come back to these verses that, whoa, wait a minute, you know, shake yourself off, John. You know, you may feel like you're going through something right now, but keep that in mind. 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 Because five seconds in front of him, I'll tell you, all I look for, all I'm striving for, isn't even something. It's words. Well done, good and faithful servant. To hear him say, well done, is everything to me. But to look in his eyes and see disappointment. Because at that point, you're not dealing with the devil. You're not dealing with... You're dealing... He's it. He's it. He's the one thing. He's it. Okay. That's us. Examine ourselves. Realize that the rewards. But this applies. Let's go to Romans 14. So I have concern for making sure that I've done what I'm supposed to do so that I receive my reward. Romans 14, verse 7. 
None of us lives to himself and no one dies to himself. If we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and rose and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. But why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For as it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each well, each one of us shall give an account, look at this, each one shall give an account of himself to God, not of each other. I will not stand before God and give an account for my wife, other than how well I perform my role as a husband to enable her to perform her role. And she won't stand before God for how good a pastor I was or whether I did what I was supposed to do other than her role in that. But notice that. So each one of us will give an account of ourselves and yet we spend so much time worrying about everybody else. Well, they're not doing what they're supposed to do. They're not doing that. You're not going to give an account for them. And while you're worried about what they're doing, you're swatting flies and bees, you're taking your eyes off of what you're here to do, and you get busy looking at what other people are doing. You're not going to give an account for what they do. You will give an account for what you do. It gets better. Therefore, verse 13, let us not judge anyone anymore, but rather resolve this, not to put a stumbling block or cause to fall in your brother's way. Not only am I not to, because of this, because we're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ, not only am I not to be looking at what everybody else is doing, but I'm to be careful that the way I'm living my life isn't tempting them to take their eyes off the road and off of what they're here to do. Because we influence one another. I don't know if you've ever experienced this when you know you're dealing with a temptation, whether it's to smoke or something like that, and you see another Christian smoking, you just get this sense of, well, I guess it's okay. It kind of lowers your resistance to whatever it is. And I'm not getting into whether smoking is a sin or not. Pastor Sam has this great expression. Smoking doesn't send you to hell, it just makes you smell like you've been there. <laughs> he said that, I didn't. Where were we? But we influence one another. And when we lower that standard and we relax it and we get slumber or sleep about something, other people see us, we're encouraging them to do that. And we're to care for one another enough that not only do I care how well I stand before him, but I want to help you to stand before him in the account that you have to give, which is why we're talking about this today. Last point, and this is the most important one, and we may not finish this one today. We're talking now about we're talking now about how when this life is over what happens to us as Christians. But there's and we've talked about I've got to be concerned and focused that I'm going to stand before God and give an account before Christ for well I was faithful to do what I was called to do. I've got to stand before him and realize how I've affected your walk and your faithfulness 
and whether I've helped that or hindered that. But there's a third aspect that we have that, that affects us when you have this perspective. And that's to realize that every day we go past people. We work with people. We have people in our family that don't know when that, when that herald calls. There's no lamp. There's no oil in their lamps. They're not ready at all. And the, when, the bridegroom come, when the bridegroom comes to take the bride, the church, to himself, they'll be left out because they've had the opportunity to go get the oil, but they wasted the opportunity and they slumbered thinking, well, there'll always be some chance. I don't agree with that. I don't like that. Every day there's people around us that don't have oil. That if Jesus comes back today, they're not going to go with him. And that is an eternal decision. Because when you leave this earth, whether because Jesus comes back and calls the church, or whether you leave this life individually and go on to the next life, whichever place you go to, you go there forever with no hope of change. The reason this has become very personal to me is a week ago, I lost one of my brothers. He was a stepbrother. He's four years younger than I was, full of health, vital man. Skier, he lived up in, up in Steamboat Springs, had a beautiful, uh, Colorado had a great construction business up there. He skied, he was a great skier, his kids are all great skiers. And he was just adventuresome. And he was climbing a tree. You might say, why would a 65-year-old man climb a tree? You had to know Michael. Those of you that were in school of ministry and heard me tell about my brother that jumped rocks, this is the rock-jumping brother. He fell out of a tree, which he'd done often. But this time, it was a tragic accident. It's a long story. I don't want to go into that story. I'm sharing it with you because six years ago, Anita and I had a chance to go visit him and his wife. And, you know, it's family. It's always a little awkward because, you know, I don't, you know, they know me and I know them. And it was a really Anita that stirred this up. We were at lunch and she just said, you know, we really need to share the Lord with him. You know, and you get uncomfortable. Well, yeah, he's my brother, you know. But I've realized this may be our only chance. So we did. And we shared it with him and he's, we have the same background. He was raised, we raised in a family where education is, and, and intellect is so highly looked up to. He's a graduate of Princeton University, brilliant guy. And we've talked to him over and over again, and we took a break, and we went somewhere else and talked to him again, and he came that close. I remember pleading with him, Michael, please, I know what you're dealing with. I know your mind's questioning. I've been there, but you know me. You know what I'm like, but you've seen the change. Michael, please. And he just, the tears coming down. I just, I, I said, all right, I'm going to pray for you. And he just cried, cried. That was the last chance I had to see him. Continued to pray for him. We didn't talk often, and I probably should have talked more often. I got a call t- two weeks ago. He'd been in a coma from the fall that there was so much brain damage that there, were just, there was no hope. And if he lived, it, was, it wasn't going to be, he couldn't even breathe. And so the family made the most, the very difficult decision. And another brother was there, and I, 
I said, can I talk? I, I, you know, he may be able to hear something. Can you please put my, your phone down so I can say something to him? Because I've been praying, God, send somebody in there. Send a Christian in there, just whisper in his ear that he still has that chance. And as I'm praying that, the Lord showed me this idea. You can speak to him through a phone. So I said, ask, ask his family. He said, oh yeah, you can talk to him. So I had him put the phone down. I said, Michael, I love you. I don't have much time. But remember I talked to you about Jesus when we're out there. You still can do that now. And then they took the phone away. I don't know what he did. I'll have to wait till I get to heaven to know. But in that moment's time, going through that, it just shook me back to what's really, the only thing that's really important. For us as Christians, not just to make sure we're okay, but those around us. And if you're here today and you've never given your life to Christ, the bridegroom has not called yet. There's still time. There's still time. There's still time. My brother went up that tree that day. I know Michael. Just, you know, just any challenge, he was going to take it on. Never dreaming that those moments on that tree may be the last conscious moments he had. And that what he decided up until that point was going to determine where he was going to be for eternity. The last conversation we had with him there, when we pled with him, if he had just moved an inch, that inch, and said yes, what a difference it would have made forever. Whatever he did, whether he could hear me or not, whatever choice he made has been made. But you still have that opportunity today. You still have that opportunity today. A number of years ago, we had a young man on his motorcycle come here, visited on a Sunday. It was somebody else. And, 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 and the, the, the pastor at the time was talking about this issue and invited people to come forward, as I'm going to give in a moment that had never given their life to Christ or had given their life to Christ but had just kind of walked away from him. And this young man came down and gave his life to Christ. And the next morning was killed in a motorcycle accident. I think he was in his 20s. Thought he had the rest of his life in front of him. Tragically killed. You're not guaranteed this afternoon or tomorrow. And when we're young and full of life and hope, it's hard to understand. But here's a 65-year-old man, still full of life and hope and vigor, not yet accepting that at any moment, it could be over. And the sound comes. And the bridegroom comes for those that belong to him. Because when they came back at the end of that story, they knocked at the door and they said, please let us in. And the Lord says, I don't know you. I don't know you. Today, if that's you, if you've never given your life to Jesus, you don't need to understand it. You don't need to do very much other than as an act of your will, choose to say yes. I want to know today that if my life was required of me that I'm going to open my eyes in heaven and see Jesus. 
The Bible says what the requirement is. You must be born again. Jesus said no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born again. He said in order to enter heaven, you must come through him, through Jesus. You must choose to believe that Jesus is your savior, not the savior of the world. You must receive him as your savior. Invite him into your life. And then you must take your life, this is so important, and put it into his hands to be the Lord of your life. And then the rest of your life is a process of living that out, but it starts as an act of your will. Jesus is calling you this morning. I don't believe it's very long before that trumpet's going to sound and Jesus is going to come back for those that belong to him. Will you be among them? Because if you're not, at that point, it's too late. And we're not talking about a sleep of death. We're talking about an eternity in hell, separated forever from the God of love and the God of life, the God of hope, the God of grace. What is your choice this morning? Every head bowed and every eye closed, please. I presented the question to you. And so now it's up to you. If you're here this morning and you've never received Christ as your Savior, personally invited Him into your life and given your life to Him, don't leave here today without doing that. And I want to help you this morning. Because what I'd like to do is pray with you. I need you to let me know and let Jesus know that that's what you want in your life by raising your hand. Sometimes people wrestle inside themselves. If you're wrestling inside yourselves, that's God knocking on your heart, saying, please let me in. Please let me in. I want to give a second invitation. You've done that before. You've received Christ. But as we've talked about things today, you realize you're not where you need to be. You're not walking with Him anymore. We all have to grow. We're all not where we need to be ultimately. We're all not yet into that place of perfection that Christ has ultimately called us to get to. But you won't get there here in this life. But I'm talking to people that have slidden back. They're not walking with Him anymore. You're on your own. And usually they know who they are. I have good news for you today. Regardless of what you've done, where you've been, what you've been through, you can't go anywhere or do anything that's beyond God's love and God's mercy and God's grace. And this morning, He's ready to take you back, clean you up, forgive you, wash you clean, and put His arms around you again and set you back on your walk with Him. But you have to take that step towards Him. If that's you, I want to pray for you. Both of those invitations are on the floor right now. Imagine standing before God saying, I didn't repent because I was worried about what other people thought. It's what He thinks that matters. This is between you and God right now. God loves you very much. And this service may have been just for you. That's how much He loves you. I'm going to lead you in a prayer. And when we're done with this prayer, 
what God's word says he's going to do is he's going to come inside your, in your heart, not your physical heart, your real nature. And he's going to take it out and he's going to put a new one in there. The new one's from him. So now you'll have an ability to begin to live life in a different way. And it just starts today. You're not going to be perfect at it. I'm not perfect at it. And you, everything you've ever done will be forgiven. And you'll stand today before God white as snow as if you'd never done anything wrong. All you've got to do is mean this as best you can. That's all you can do. And say it loud enough for you to hear it. God will hear it. And the congregation is going to join us, okay? Say, Father, I come to you in the name of Jesus. Thank you for loving me.